welcome to episode 110 of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea, and my guest today is my 20-year-old daughter, Grace Kingsley Miller. This episode is a deeply personal and vulnerable one, and really the hardest conversation I've recorded to date, so I hope you will hold Grace's words and story tenderly. In our conversation, Grace shares her journey with trauma, mental illness, self-harm, and ultimately a diagnosis of bipolar disorder that she received a year ago at age 19. An estimated 7 million adults in the U.S. live with bipolar disorder, a mental health condition that causes dramatic shifts in a person's mood, energy, and ability to think clearly. Its effects can be disabling. An estimated 83% of people with bipolar disorder had serious impairment the highest rate among mood disorders. Bipolar disorder is also highly stigmatized, resulting in the spread of misinformation and misconceptions about the condition. When Grace received her diagnosis a year ago, she felt the weight of the stigma. She didn't want to tell anyone about her diagnosis. Through this past year of healing through therapy and medication and learning more about her diagnosis, Grace now has a passion to share openly about her experience and diagnosis, to let others know they are not alone in their journey. This is a hard, hard mother-daughter conversation, but also one that is hope-filled and healing and challenges us to do better in how we talk about mental illness and treat and love those who suffer. Before you listen in, I do wanna give a trigger warning. There's talk of sexual trauma, suicidal thoughts, and self-harm. Also, please note we are not doctors and this is not medical advice. This is Grace's story and experience with bipolar disorder and a treatment that worked for her. If you or someone you know is struggling, please seek out your own professional advice and treatment. Although ketamine did wonders for Grace, it is not a one-size-fits-all treatment and there are precautions to take. So again, seek out your own professional advice and treatment. Now listen in as Grace shares her story. Grace Kingsley Miller, welcome back to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here with you. Well, you, I say back because we recorded an episode, what was it, two years ago? I don't know. You were 18, I believe. Yeah. And you're 20 now. And we shared a lot in that episode, which I'll link up in the show notes here, but we shared a lot in that episode just about our whole church evolution, church harm, waking up to all the things that we were blind to in our privilege and how just drastically our family changed over the last few years. And that's what we talked on in that episode. But there were other things going on at that time that we didn't talk about and that were hard things that we were still processing. And I don't know, maybe not even fully aware of, I would say. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Your battle with mental health. Is that how I should frame this? Yeah, I think just like my mental health experience journey, definitely a battle at times. So yeah. Yeah. And you have not wanted to talk about this in the past. Like this has been a hard, hard journey for you and you've come a long way wanting to talk about this. And tell me a little bit why you want to talk about this. Cause I think that's really important. I want to talk about this simply because I, I want people to feel like they're not as alone as they feel. Having any kind of mental health struggle is an extremely ostracizing feeling. And to just have one person say, no, I get it. Like, I feel that way too. It makes you feel less alone. It makes you feel less crazy. It makes you feel less ostracized. And if I can just let someone know, hey, you're not alone, then that's really why I care. And you have felt every bit of that. Yeah. I'm going to, we're going to go back in time, but just even farther than a year. But a year ago at this time... 
you were diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and that was really a hard, hard diagnosis for you to digest, except for our family. You didn't want to talk about it. You had a lot of shame because of what society does and the image that is projected with that. I remember even saying at the time, you know, anxiety, ADHD, depression, those are all being accepted. But these bigger ones are so stereotype and misrepresented and you felt the weight of that shame with your diagnosis. And I want to say, it's not that I was like, oh, anxiety and depression, like what I have is worse. It's not a competition. It's more just like they're becoming less stigmatized in society, whereas things like bipolar, borderline personality disorder, schizophrenia, those things are extremely stigmatized still. So it's just like, man, if I just had depression or anxiety, at least some people would get what that means. Yeah, Yeah, and like we've talked about, and maybe we don't want to touch on this yet, but the whole media, do we want to wait to talk about the media representation? Yeah, let's wait. Okay. Okay, so we'll come back. Uh, We'll put a pin in that and come back to talking about your diagnosis and going forward over the last year. But let's go back farther in time because this just didn't come out of nowhere that you got this diagnosis. Looking back, we see a lot of the signs and things you were battling that we just didn't weren't aware of at the time what what it was. I mean, you literally were like, I think thought you were crazy, I guess, but you weren't voicing a lot to us. I mean, we were not educated as parents and so many parents aren't. And it's important to know, I printed off just a little bit here. Bipolar, also known as manic depressive, is a psychiatric disease. It was estimated in 2020 to affect 2.3% of the population or approximately 5.9 million adults in the United States ages 18 or older. An estimated 51% of individuals with this condition are untreated in any given year. So it's a highly undiagnosed mental diagnosis, mental illness, and misdiagnosed a lot too. Yeah. And I think also because of that shame, it sounds so awful that's like, that's the last thing we're going to want to have a diagnosis of. Yeah. So let's turn back to when you were like 14-ish. Is that your first memory of feeling like... I'm off, or you start where you want to. I think I I would want to start a little bit before that, just for like context of of me and myself. As far as childhood goes, like there are some times when I'm like, wow, my childhood was amazing, so many fun things. You know, you and dad, you weren't perfect, but you always cared about being good parents. Um, And then there's also some parts of it that were extremely damaging to me. Um, At times, our household was a little chaotic just because, and you've shared on here before, like you guys had marriage issues money issues, lying, dad was used to be an alcoholic, you were struggling with your own mental things, and you were definitely doing your best to shield me from that. But as as a kid, children pick up on things, they remember. I have lots of vivid memories of things that were going on, and I internalized it as, okay, I need to be the best kid that I can be. I need to be on my best behavior so that I don't contribute to the chaos, so that my parents don't get a divorce, so that I'm not something to fight over. I just, I wanted to take up the least amount of space as possible and cause no problems. And I think you could, you could attest that I was pretty good kid. I was Mm -hmm. pretty good at that. Yes, you you were. And... So I just became a really big people pleaser, whether it was in the house, in school. I kind of let people at school walk all over me because I just really wanted them to like me. I really wanted, I just really wanted everybody to like me. So that alone was a little traumatizing, just what I was experiencing at home and like the way that I was internalizing it and kind of keeping it deep down inside of me. And then another traumatizing event happened when I was nine and I was sexually assaulted And that's something that I kept to myself for a very long time because, again, I didn't want to 
I thought that if I came out about that, then I would be causing more problems. I would be a disappointment. I um, would be something to fight about. And I just didn't, I didn't want that to be me. So I don't want to cause yeah. any extra stress in a house that you already sensed all the extra stress. Yeah, and, exactly. And no parents are perfect. You give us a lot of grace for that. But also we did a lot of things wrong in terms of not talking to you about anything that was going on more like trying to present everything is fine but then knowing everything wasn't fine with our arguing or alcoholism or eating disorder or you know I remember once when we were giving a tour to John your dad's parents of our new house and you were like this is my this is my mom's room and this is my dad's room like it was just so (laughs) matter of fact my parents don't even sleep in the same bedroom yeah so there were layers of like dysfunction and trauma yeah happening to you and how you coped was just trying to be good and perfect and stuff it all down and act like everything is fine yeah so I definitely stuffed all of that down for a few years I was able to do it kind of disassociate from it, which is obviously a coping mechanism now that I look back. But we'll flash forward a little bit to like you said, when I was about 14 is when I feel like I could no longer stuff anything down and it just exploded inside of me. And I began to feel extremely depressed every day. I had a really hard time getting out of bed, cleaning anything, brushing my teeth, going to school, um, staying motivated, being concentrated, just all the things that come along with depression. But I didn't know what depression was. So at 14, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what's wrong with me? Like, I'm a kid. I'm supposed to be, you know, a kid. But here I am not even wanting to get out of bed and accepting the fact that if I died, it would be okay, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's also around the time that I began to self-harm in the form of of cutting and like hurting myself physically. And, you know, as humans, we're wired to stay away from pain. Like we avoid pain at all costs. So when you're inflicting pain upon yourself, like that's how you know you're really going through it. And for me, I think you know, self-harm, people do it for different reasons. I think for me at the time, it was just like, I had all of this pain. I didn't know what to do with it. I felt so much shame from what had happened to me and it manifested itself into that. And I would also add, and correct me if I'm wrong. Well, two things. Can I interject? Um, As you're talking, I'm thinking about, so we talked about the childhood and the trauma but if we looked at when you were about 14, that's when I feel like our life was getting like it was on the surface up. was getting pulled together with finances and marriage. And, and maybe that's when you felt like, God, now I can release, but now I'm feeling all this. Yeah. And, and on the flip side, your dad and I were like, what the hell is wrong with her? Yeah. Everything is fine. She should have been acting like that. Like, you know, yeah. so it's like, that's where the big disconnect was. And I would say the other thing that happened during that time and again, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but they're really being immersed in the church yeah, and purity culture and just trusting God and everything is fine. And so I'm guessing that added to your shame and self-harm and the purity culture that you were in. For sure, because church was presented to me, God was presented to me as something that could save me and heal me and take away all this pain. But none of my pain was going away. It was just really getting worse. And so I actually opened up to some of my friends at church about my self-harm and like the way I was feeling. And their response to me was, well, you just need to be closer to God because the closer you are to God, the more pain that he will take away from you. 
And I was like, like, what, what do you want me to do? Like, I thought I was really close to God. I was incredibly involved in church. I... I mean, I could not have almost been right. more involved you were, in you church. Were everything, <laughs> and I think that's how you were trying to like get better. Yeah. Like, okay, I'll just keep being a better human and serving God more and loving yeah. more and serving more. Like, yeah, and it wasn't working for you. I mean, you were being totally spiritually bypassed in your feelings yeah. of deep depression and self harm. Yeah. Exactly. So I kind of just kept giving of myself to church and the people around me, thinking that that would fix me, but it really only made it worse. Um, and then also just like the shame that comes along with self-harming because at least this form of self-harm, like it's visible, but you really don't want anybody to see it, but it's also kind of a subconscious cry for help. But I wasn't about to go to my parents and be like, this is something I'm struggling with. You know, I didn't want you to know. Um, so that's just like a circle, a cycle of shame yeah. that continues, yeah. especially in the warmer months when you wear short sleeve. It's just a horrible it is. cycle. It is. And the stigma with self-harm cutting is yeah. right up there. I have not dealt with that sort of self-harm, but it's like that one I have to think is the shame is is one of the worst on that. Yeah. And like you said, we did not know about that for a while. We did know you were really depressed and struggling. Yeah. But I think we tried to talk. I, I can't. I'm trying to remember. Yeah. We were trying to talk to you. And of course, you didn't want to talk about it because we really hadn't been open talking about other things. So I'm guessing you didn't want to. And yeah. you, me and your dad were very involved in the church and immersed with that. So I can see yeah. our response. You probably were like, oh, they're probably just going to pray it away or yeah. tell me to get closer yeah. to God or something. But then I did discover your self-harm and yes. I'm not recommending this way of discovery. I remember just how deeply depressed you are, like couldn't get out of bed, couldn't get out of school. But then I also remember moments of like, oh, everything's fine. And yeah. I think that was what also the hard thing was like, yeah. oh, she's fine now. Yeah. She's, she's happy and out fine. late with her friends. She's, you know, downstairs talking it up. Yes. Yeah. So I think that was a really hard thing too. Like, okay, she's fine. Nothing's wrong. Yeah. But I then remember a really, when you're in a deep depressive episode, reading your journal. Yes. And again, I'm not <laughs> advocating that, but that is what I, yeah. why I did. It's the only time I read your journal, but that is why I discovered that you were self-harming. And I, I remember thinking also you had suicidal thoughts, but you didn't deny that. So I don't know if that's I definitely accurate. did. I think that like when you say you have suicidal thoughts, people assume that that means like you've made a plan. You have a date, which definitely is a reality for some people. I never was like, this is what I'm going to do. It was just that everyday feeling of like, you know, I don't really have that much of a will to live. And if I did die today crossing the street, it's okay. Yeah. You know? And yeah. so that's kind of, kind of what it was for me. And that's what it has been for a long time. So yeah, so you made that discovery. And like you said, it's not advised, but when we were talking about this last night, I said, I'm really glad that you did that. At the time, it wasn't good. It was a very traumatic thing. But looking back, like that needed to happen or else I don't know if I would still be here. I don't know. I don't know what what would have happened right. to me. Right. Um, but after that, the time that followed after that wasn't good either because we didn't know how to talk about it together. I think you were, I don't want to speak for you, but I think you were scared. You didn't know what to do. I was embarrassed and humiliated and just felt so exposed all at once. And I remember you would ask me like, have you done that again? Are you doing that? And I'd be like, no, you know, leave me alone. I would take off my shirt in front of you and be like, look, like I'm not. And it was just altogether really 
bad yeah. time, it I was. you would agree. No, it really was. And even last night when we were talking about our, when you said, I'm glad you did that, I was like, I don't know, because I feel like the harm caused after was pretty intense as far as, you know, taking you to the doctor and what she told you. And yeah. then the Christian therapist, what they told you, that was even more trauma. And I think, and we'll talk about that, but it's like, as parents, we probably added to your shame because we were so shocked. Yeah. And like, just could not relate. And like, what, what? Yeah. And I mean, I remember reading on the internet, trying to like, what, how do I help? Like keep asking, like, it's just, it's so... It's so much as a parent, and it's so devastating, but even more so, obviously, to you. What would your recommendation be to a parent that perhaps discovers this with their child? I mean, I think the best thing to do, if you can, is to already have been having those conversations. Yeah. Like, from a time your child can consciously understand, like, what mental health is, what suicide is, like to plant those seeds and be like, this is something we talk about openly. As a parent, you can share your own struggles if you've had them to make your kid feel less alone. Because we didn't do that. Yeah, you didn't no. know I had struggled with depression, anxiety, and that I was on Zoloft. Like, we just, yeah. and with my de- severe of the yeah. eating disorder. You didn't know that. I didn't share that. Yeah. But then as far as, like, if you discover that this is something your child's dealing with, and maybe you have or haven't had those conversations prior, the first thing to do is to evaluate your reaction to them. You cannot act shocked. You cannot, you know, act devastated. It can't be about you in that moment because your kid feels so vulnerable, so scared, clearly is going through something. And you need to be a rock and be like, I see you. I'm here for you. Let's talk together about how we can tackle this. What do you need from me? Yeah. You just need to be that rock. Yeah. You know, and if and if you in your own time need to process your emotions, you can. But I don't think you can do that in front of yeah. your kid. Because for me, like, I knew you were so upset. And, like, we talked last night. Like, I did the one thing I didn't want to do to make you feel upset and devastated and to have me be the center of an issue, of a problem. Like, that's the last thing I wanted. So now I felt like I just needed to protect your emotions and dad's emotions. And that's the last thing I wanted to do. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yes, I did not handle it correctly. That's but a also, big a do-over, but we have learned yeah. and processed and talked and doing better. So one of the first things I did was take you to the doctor. Yes. And that was a more traumatic experience. So if you want to share just a little bit of that and what yeah. you were told, because I think this, we want to share this, we do, because of the harm that can continue to happen. Yeah. If people are not really yeah. in check and with the right um, professionals seeing them. Yes. So we went to the doctor I told her about the self-harm, which that alone was just humiliating. And she said, okay, well, I need to ask you, are you doing this for attention? And oh, I could have just died right there on the spot, you know, because no, I wasn't doing it for attention. I actually hated the attention that was coming yeah. along with it. But I also want to make a note that if there was a child that g- genuinely was quote unquote doing it for attention, they're still, they need help. Like yeah, they're that still asking for it. help. No right. kid that's perfectly fine is just like, I'm going to go hurt myself. You know, like right. there's still something there that needs yeah, help. It's you like, know? okay, yes, I am doing it for attention. This so is give me attention help. and help me. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember her telling me even after, like, she's just doing this for attention. Like all the kids are doing it, like blowing it off, like such a not yeah. big deal. And I looked at her like, oh, she's the professional. Okay. I guess Grace is just doing this for attention. Yeah. And she put you on antidepressants yes. at that time because it's like, okay, maybe she is struggling with depression. It sounds like she is. So, yeah. 
and not a psychiatrist, not somebody that specializes in just our your general pediatrician who yeah. did this, and we left it at that. And I do remember you being really upset after that. Then we got you into a first therapist. We tried several therapists in Oklahoma, yeah. <laughs> and yes, talk on that. I think that the therapists weren't a good fit for me. And I also wasn't a good fit for therapy because I did not want to talk about anything. I would just kind of go in there and be like, okay, can we draw in those coloring books and (laughs) in 30 minutes I'll leave? Like, you know, I wasn't open to it. And then the therapists weren't great either. They were Christian based and that's not what I needed for me um, because it was just more of that like religious harm. Like we need to pull closer to God. We need to trust God. You know, God will take away your pain. And I'm like, okay, well... Why hasn't he? Like, what am I doing wrong? And so after a while, I think we were just like, okay, yeah, you know, we're done with that. And there, finding a good therapist and therapy can be a really long road, a really long journey. I think therapy is really good, and I do believe everyone should be in therapy, but that doesn't mean the first therapist you meet is going to be a perfect fit. Yeah. Probably not. It's a hard struggle, a harder struggle than it should be Yeah, navigating the mental health field with finding therapists and doctors and medication like it's so hard yeah. and I've seen this with you and we're still which we'll talk about figuring out medication and how yeah. to how to handle but you have connected with a really good therapist this last year yeah. and a half and we'll talk about that but so going back to where you said you didn't even want to talk so you could yeah. have found a great therapist but if you don't want to talk it's not going to be helpful that's where I think parents struggle because what do you do if your child doesn't want to talk about it yeah. Because, you know, now you see how talking and processing does help, but there yeah. are so many kids that are like, I'm, I don't even want to talk about it. I'm fine. Yeah. Something I always told my dad specifically, because dad's, he wants to get in, he wants to fix the problem, he wants to know what can I do and I'll do it. And obviously that comes from a good intention, but finally I told him, I don't need you to do anything. Mm-hmm. I need you to just be there if I want you there. I need you to listen and I need you to just let me know. I'm here on the sideline. I will sit with you when you're sad, but I don't need you to fix my problem because you can't. So I think it all really starts with, like like I said earlier, genuinely letting your kid know, I'm not here to fix you. I'm not here to meddle in your business. I'm here to let you know that I'll sit with you when you're sad. And that creates a level of trust to where I think that eventually as a child, you do feel okay talking with your parents because that's when I finally felt okay talking with you guys when you guys were just like, okay, we're here because no one knows what to do. I don't know. There's no perfect answer on how to help your child who's struggling with depression, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But you just have to make yourself available, but not suffocating. And I needed to hear what you just said because I still think me and your dad both fall back into that even the last year of when you've had a major depressive like we want to fix it it hurts so much to see your child suffering you want to take it away you would take it but we can't fix it yeah you can't and like you said we need that reminder of just know your child knows you love them and that you're there for them yeah you're gonna sit with them yeah and you're not gonna try to act like everything's okay you're not gonna try to just pray it away like you were you were there and all in for them yeah and something else i want to touch on and we were talking about this a little bit so bipolar is hereditary, but it also can be triggered yeah. by traumatic life events. Yeah. So as we've processed, we neither your dad nor I have anybody in our family diagnosed as bipolar, yeah. but we can look at various people throughout our family and think, oh yeah, I think they did. 
because yeah. it just wasn't diagnosed. Yeah. I mean, so now had you not had the traumatic events, would you still have had bipolar come out? I don't know. Yeah. And we don't know the yeah. answer to that, but they're definitely related. Would you say? Oh, for sure. And I do think that the church trauma really impacted and magnified oh, yeah. it. Just the, the purity culture and you feeling like you have to cover up and your body is shameful. I mean, I think all of that yeah. just added to the severity of your bipolar. Yeah, it, it all created one giant piece of trauma. Mm-hmm. Getting, like being sexually assaulted or having your body taken advantage of and then years later being part of a church that says, well, your job is to cover up and protect men and if men do slip up, it's because you were doing something wrong. That alone is like, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. creates another layer of trauma on top of it. Yeah, because yeah. you hadn't told us about that event until the height of purity culture. Yeah. I remember you broke down crying to me. In a Panera. In a Panera. Because <laughs> we were talking about some the peak of purity culture that you were in and just some ridiculousness that was going on with you being told to cover yourself and because you were exciting the teenage boys and shameful rumor like just all this bullshit and you broke down crying and like this is why yeah I can't even tell you that this happened because that I've been taught that that was my fault yeah and I think you were what maybe 15 or something when you broke down and so I just I don't think you and I can ever talk enough about that, of the harm of purity culture. And yeah. we saw it. And we're not saying that caused your bipolar, no. but I think it certainly contributed to the self-harm, the cutting, the shame, and all that trauma yeah. that made it manifest and bubble to the surface. Is there anything you want else you want to share on the church or purity culture? Um, honestly, no. I feel like okay. we covered that a lot before. And... Okay. So where do we want to fast forward to? So we're dealing with that. I read your journal. We're trying to get you the help. I don't think we had, I think we went for several years in Oklahoma, not really getting you any help. Yeah. And you were just, I mean, I don't know. You kind of get to a point, and I don't want to speak for everybody that deals with mental illness, but at least for me, like, there's like an acceptance point almost where it's like, okay, well, this is who I am. This is my life. I guess I just need to figure out how to deal with that. And for a while, that's where I was at. Um, Like 16, 17 years old, I just completely accepted the fact, okay, I'm going to get really, really depressed once a month. I'll feel fine. And then it'll come back. So I guess soak up the good times as much as you can. And I was on an antidepressant for a while, I think sometimes I tried to convince myself that it was working. I don't know if it actually really ever did because I was really depressed a lot. But yeah, and I just hated to talk about it. So it's not like we were talking about it. I think a lot I would tell you like, oh yeah, I'm feeling better. I'm fine. Because I just didn't want to talk about it. I also didn't want to accept the fact that that this really was my reality. You know, I could almost accept it within myself, but I didn't want other people to have to accept that. Right. You know? Right. And then fast, so we fast forward to 2020, where we leave Oklahoma, we leave the church, where everything, we're like, oh my God, this has all been traumatic for us. My dad died, so we moved back to Kansas City area. The stress, I think, of 2020 caused a a lot of more (laughs) mental illnesses to surface. Yeah. And it was not not good for you. And I think, was it 2021 that you were like, Mom, I need to get back in therapy? Because you hadn't been in therapy for quite a while because you were just done with the Christian therapist in Oklahoma. Yeah. 
I think I had come to you and I said, hey, I'd really like to try to get back into therapy just kind of for, you know, for whatever, for Mm -hmm. self-growth. Really, though, like, I knew I desperately needed to be back Mm -hmm. in therapy. I was not doing well. I had gone to college in 2021. I started going to KU, University of Kansas. And it's so weird because I can look back at that time like, no, that is when, like, the best part of my life started. And also, like, that was one of the worst times ever. I loved college and like the people I was meeting and the fun things we got to do. Like I loved all of that. I loved being away from home. But on like a personal mental level, I had truly probably never been worse since I was like 14. I don't know exactly why. I don't know if it was moving away in like a new environment and feeling isolated. I don't know. But it was really bad. Honestly, it's a bit of a blur to me that first semester of school. Um, I would lay in my my bunk bed all day. I would just not go to class because I I physically could not get up to go to class. Or I would like walk, I would get in the elevator, get downstairs, and then like look at how far I had to walk to the bus stop and be like, I cannot do that today. Mm -hmm. And I had mentioned previously, like I had kind of gotten to a place of personal acceptance that this was my reality at this point I could not accept it I was not okay with it I was like if this is what the rest of my life is going to be like it's not worth it I understand why people commit suicide like we discussed because it's so draining it is so hopeless I'm, I'm sitting here thinking I'm at the time 18 years old I'm so young if I'm already done with life like what is the point in like continuing on like I'm not gonna do this forever I literally can't and I wasn't physically like physically like cutting self-harming anymore but there was tons of things I can look back and think that I was doing that still are self-harm you know like not eating or eating too much or sleeping all day or just literally watching tv all day or There's, of course, in college, like, drinking and drugs. Like, anything that I could do that would just numb myself, like, I was doing it. And so that's when I came to you and was like, hey, I'm fine, but I really want to go to therapy. (laughs) And Um, I hate, like, I feel like we had worked on a more honest relationship, but the fact that you still were like, I'm fine, but it's just how deep that runs of, like, wanting to not be a problem or not wanting my parents to worry. It's not that I didn't feel, like, it's not that I didn't trust you because at that point our relationship really was good. It was just like, I do not want to tell them that I have failed again. Mm. And not, and I don't believe anymore now that that was a failure of me. Like, I don't believe that. But at the time, that's what my mindset was. It's like, I have failed again. They have tried to get me to go to therapy. They have given me medications. None of it works. I don't want them to feel helpless like I do. Like, so I'm just going to tell her I'm fine, but I want to go to therapy. <laughs> You know, yeah, and and being in college is such like a weird. It can be very isolating. You know, I lived in the dorms, and people almost kind of came to know me as someone that was just depressed and smoking weed a lot, (laughs) and I kind of just accepted that that's who I was because I felt like there was nowhere else for me to go. So I almost like leaned into the depression as like a a comfort Mm -hmm. almost. Like that's your identity. Yeah, that's how I where I am. Yeah, fine. That's who I am. You know. I don't know what I am without it, and I don't know how to escape it, so fine. I will sit here and be depressed all day. Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of lose that will to fight because mm-hmm. it's, it's just been so long, mm-hmm. you know. But then I started going to therapy. Okay, yes. And, and with that depression, I just want to backtrack a little bit. You did have periods of the mania looking back. Oh, yeah. But the mania... I think so often when we, at least I did, even with your first, di- with your diagnosis, I was like, yeah, but she's not manic. Like she doesn't go out and just like 
all the negative stereotypes, yeah. you know, but mania can manifest differently in different people. Yeah. I mean, mania can be what you may think of stereotypical as doing things that are extremely, extremely reckless, um, just genuinely not caring about your actions. That can be a reality and there should be no stigma to that. But mania can also be, you know, not sleeping for a really long time, kind of putting aside what you know need to be your priorities and responsibilities because you kind of just don't care because you're like, nothing matters and, right. you know, whatever. And then also feeling like, I am the best. I am the best person ever. I feel like I'm in a movie. I feel like everybody's yeah. watching me. I feel superior, not in an egotistical way. It's just very hard to explain that feeling. Like a euphoria. Yeah, like a, just a euphoria, a euphoric way. And, and what I would always think, I would have a depressive episode. I would come out of it and have a little bit of mania. And I would think... Why was I depressed? That was so stupid of me. That was so dramatic of me. Everything is amazing, incredible. I am incredible. I will never let myself feel that way again. And then, of course, you feel that way again. You're like, I'm a failure. I'm the worst. I can do nothing. And it's it's so exhausting. You know, Mm -hmm. it's such an exhausting Mm -hmm. cycle. But yeah. So you were... Okay, and that's what I wanted to just clarify because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about mania, especially in the news and um, media. And the other thing I think with mania is anxiety, excessive talking. So there's a lot of things that are not that we think with mania. Yeah. At the same time you, I did, when you asked to find the therapist, I did like search and search and pour time into it. And yeah. I just, again, want to say finding a good therapist is really, really hard and it's harder than it should be. Yeah. But it is so worth the effort. And I think yeah. that's something we can help advocate for. Like, I can't ex- believe we expect somebody that's like in a depressive episode to find a therapist. Like it's just yeah. some or show up for your psychiatrist appointment. So I think those people that are, are in a, I guess, healthier mental state, like yeah. your advocate can do those things for you. So we searched, you found a therapist that you are still seeing yeah. that was hearing all of this. And she, after months yeah. and months of seeing her and she's like, what did yeah. she say? She, after a few months of seeing her and hearing about all my issues, she was like, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist. Like, I can't technically give you an official diagnosis or prescribe you medication. She's like, but I really think that you are showing signs of having bipolar disorder. And I was like, well, that's new, you know, like, okay. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, when she told me it, I wasn't really upset or down on myself because she said, like, she's not a psychiatrist. So I was just kind of like, okay, like that's what she thinks. Maybe we should look into it, you know, whatever. And I also really trusted her. Like, I love her. Like, I love my therapist. Um, so I think I came to you and I told you that she had said that. And I was like, so maybe I should see a psychiatrist even just to get new antidepressants for depression and anxiety that I was dealing with. So then we did find a psychiatrist. And you had that via a Zoom appointment in your dorm at KU one morning with the psychiatrist to get a total evaluation. And yeah. So it was Monday morning at like 8 o'clock. And I had class at like 9 or 9.30. So I go on the Zoom. And she's a very she's a very kind psychiatrist. So this is no dig at her. But since she does this job every day... She was just like, okay, well, after talking to you about all this, I think you definitely have bipolar disorder. (sighs) And I was like, oh, man. You're a 19-year-old college student in your dorm before you go to class. And here you go. Have a good day. (laughs) And I was like, okay, so, like, what does that mean? She's like, well, 
we'll get you on an antipsychotic or a mood uh, stabilizer, and you know, hopefully that helps you. And I was like, okay, thanks so much. Have a good day. And then I end the Zoom call, and I'm sitting there in my dorm, like, oh my gosh, it really truly never ends for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to get ready and go to class. Somehow, miraculously, I do make it to class. I remember sitting in class, like completely disassociating from the whole entire class and just like looking out the window and like trying not to cry in class because I was like wow I'm 19 like this is supposed to be the point in your life where you start like blossoming and growing and everything starts coming together I'm like it just continues to fall apart like it really truly never gets better for me and I'm like this was just another just stab in my back almost and because I did have a I did I did harbor, like, the stigma with bipolar. Because, I mean, like, you showed me the example last night of what you knew of bipolar was a show you were watching and maybe Kanye. Yeah, I was like, every time I hear about bipolar disorder, it's like Kanye West doing something. And I'm like, oh, gosh. Or the TV show Euphoria where she's a struggling drug addict. And I'm like, oh, man, you know. Yeah, so that's what you thought. So now you have this extra layer of shame. And you didn't even want to tell me and your dad about that diagnosis at all because you were that... I guess just shame filled or just heavy just or like and like once I said it out loud to you like it's a reality yeah you know it's a reality and we have to do something about it and you know you guys told me it really doesn't change anything about you and yeah. if that's true like okay now you just know what you're dealing with and you know how to attack it but at the time that is not how I felt like I felt like it genuinely did change me because yeah. I was like putting that stigma on myself and judging yeah. myself um, but when I told you your response was really great. You were like, okay, well, now we know how to how to fight this. Like, yeah. Dad would often say, like, you've been walking through life with one hand tied behind your back, and now maybe we can free that hand, and you can have a better quality of yeah. life. So it ended up, and I ended up accepting that, and it really did become a hopeful thing, but it was really hard at first to accept yeah. that. I felt like failure after failure, it mm-hmm. never ends. <laughs> no, you did, and I just remember it was so hard because you, it was months of you working to accept it you would get very down. I'm not even going to have kids or a job. Like my life is literally ruined because bipolar is not something that goes away. You do have it your entire life, but symptoms and expressions of the mania and depression can be modified or helped with drugs and therapy. But that was a whole other, the drug issue, the finding the right medication has been a struggle and hard. You didn't get a diagnosis and get on meds and now everything is okay. Yeah. It has been a struggle to yeah. find the right meds. There are so many bipolar medications and antipsychotics, but they have big side effects yeah. and they affect everybody differently. So I don't know how much you want to go into that, but just knowing that that was a struggle and it wasn't oh, an easy yeah. fix. That was one of the hardest things for me because first I felt like, oh my gosh, if I want to have a normal life, if I want to have kids, if I don't want to traumatize my kids, I have to exist on medications my whole life. That's not a good feeling. Like you don't want to feel like to act quote unquote normal, you have to be on pills your whole life. Yeah. And then also like when you finally do accept the fact like I did that okay, medication is good, there's nothing shameful about it. I'm on board to take medication. And then I start taking medication and it doesn't work or it gives me side effects. It's like, oh, right. What am I doing? Right. You know, it's like, okay, so now my whole life is me taking all these different pills and medications, none of them are working. That's so exhausting. And it just is so, like, you just really want to give up. You found yourself, fast forward to several, a few months ago, 
you had another really, really depressive episode. Yeah. And that was after, you know, you'd gone off one medication and on another. And you're like, at this, I, I just have, I'm having the worst depressive episode I think I've ever had. And yeah. I'm on medication. So now what? And I do know, at least from hearing and being with you, like that was one, a very low point. Like yeah. you, you met a feeling of hopelessness again. Yeah. I mean, it was beginning of school year, which again, so excited to be back at school, which is so frustrating when like you have all these opportunities at your fingertips, but like your depression is holding you back from like seizing the day and like being excited right. and like experiencing these things. And so I just got into this really, really bad depressive episode where I was like, wow, this just feels like it did when I was 14 and 16 and 18. And I'm on medication. And I'm on medication. Me. And I know what my diagnosis is, but yet nothing gets better. And so it's again, that feeling of like, okay, is this how you want to live your whole life? I can't have kids because I'm, I'm not going to be able to get out of bed to like change a diaper like I I literally what's the point yeah you know and that's just being very vulnerable but it's like what's the point like truly and as a parent seeing your child like that I mean there's not there is nothing worse at all and I feel like me and your dad did sit with you and listen but we still have that want to fix it because you do yeah one of the things that I after that last, during that last episode, I know I got online. I'm like, there's got to be something else. Like she cannot live her whole life like this. So a lot of Googling, a lot of reading, talking to my dear friend, Tasha, ketamine assisted therapy. And that's what we're going to talk about in this next little bit, because, and want to preface with, this is not medical advice. We are not licensed physicians. We are sharing your story, your experience, and the experience of a lot of other people on ketamine. So in my research, I came across ketamine, and I'm going to read this. Ketamine got its start in Belgium in the 1960s as an anesthesia medicine for animals. The FDA approved it as an anesthetic for people in the 1970s. It was used in treating injured soldiers on the battlefields in Vietnam. Emergency responders then would give it to agitated patients who, for example, were rescuing from a suicide attempt or some other trauma just to kind of like calm them and sedate them. But then they realized that these patients would not have suicidal thoughts or depression for like nine months after that ketamine. So they started like connecting the dots of what is this ketamine? It's more than a tranquilizer or an anesthesia. It is literally having um, effects on people that deal with severe depression, bipolar, suicidal thoughts. And so... I read about that, talked to your dad, and I'm like, I think that she needs to try this. And it is FDA approved, not for this purpose. It's FDA approved off-label. So most states do have somewhere you can go to get ketamine. It is an intensive treatment, basically, of two weeks that you went through of IV infusions for an hour every other day. It is very expensive, Most insurances do not cover it. And again, that's what I want to really acknowledge of how mental illness is. How do I want to say this? It is a privilege to be able to help me out here. It's a privilege to like heal and get all the help you need. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody deserves to have all the therapies offered to them. But unfortunately, Mm -hmm. in the capitalistic society that we live in, only people that have the money can really truly afford to heal. Yeah. Which is so truly upsetting. It's such a problem with all fields, the mental health arena being one of them, because people with lower income cannot get access to this. And that is a problem because your experience with ketamine, I mean, 
almost been like a miracle, I would say. Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit more. And and we're under no illusion that like now she's fine for the rest of her no. life. We know that. But what it's done for you has been huge, especially compared to any other thing that you've yeah. gotten. And you're still in therapy and talking through. So yeah. let's share a little bit about now that we know what ketamine is, let's go back and share a little bit of your experience. So yeah. I call you and I'm like, Grace. I send you articles. I'm like, Grace, what do you think? Because I was really nervous about it. I'm like, God, God, I'm putting my child every other day under this, uh, you know, something that's anesthetic that I don't know what. So what were your thoughts when we told you about it? Honestly, when you told me, I think an appropriate response would have been a little skepticism. I, though, was like, absolutely. Yeah. Truly give me anything. I I would have done literally, if you told me like skydiving would have solved the problem, I would have done it. You Mm -hmm. know, like... I would have done anything. So I was I was excited. I was all, I was skeptical in the sense of like is this really going to work for me like with my problems? But I would do it because yeah. I was so desperate. Yeah. So there was really not a second thought in my mind uh, when dad came to pick me up to take me to do it, you know. I yeah. remember we were even sitting in the lobby and he was like, "Are you nervous?" And I kind of thought for the first time like should I be nervous? (laughs) Like, I was just so, like, I was just like, please fix me. Like, you know, like I, because what is there to be anxious about? Either it doesn't work and I'm just back to where I was, which is how it had always been, or it works, you know, like either way, I'm not going to get worse. Or at least I didn't think that was a possibility. Right. You know? So you go back into this room for your first treatment. You had to have, your dad took you and uh, back and forth because you can't drive after it. You go back in for the first session. You had an amazing uh, nurse that is yeah. had been trained in because the ketamine is also considered a psychedelic. So he yeah. had been trained in like psychedelic assisted therapy, which another political point of the positive effects of psychedelics that it's very upsetting how they are. It's such a battle to get them legalized, yeah. and we could do another episode about that. But just yeah. another point with that. So your nurse was amazing. He's he. Uh, sat with you they hook you up to an iv so do you care about sharing a little of your experience with Absolutely. the ketamine yeah so again nurse most amazing like he wasn't just a nurse giving me ketamine he acted kind of as a psychiatrist as well talking to me about things asking me um what my intention is because that's something that's very important when you do any psychedelic is having some kind of intention so we would discuss that and you know and intention could be simple as like I want to find the best way to heal. I want to love myself. I want to have a deeper understanding of the universe. Anything like that is an intention. I want to have a deeper understanding of my trauma, where it comes from, how to fix it. So we do that. He I sit in this really, really comfy chair that leans back. He gives me a little weighted blanket, um, put blackout goggles on my face, headphones on my ears that play like really nice like classical music or like nice drums or a flute that kind of music and then he puts an IV in my arm and he says have a good trip Grace (laughs) (laughs) and um then it's so hard to explain but the best way I can explain it is you're completely removed from your body you can't feel your body you're only existing in your mind or your consciousness um which I know is confusing and you begin to see colors and lights and almost visions of things and your mind begins to wander because you really don't have control over it and before i did it he told me the ketamine is going to take you places that can be scary it's going to take your mind into thoughts that might be scary but you have to let yourself feel those feelings because if you resist it that's when you get things like 
a bad trip mm-hmm. or you know negative outcomes. So the first time was for me. I feel like just kind of getting the feel of this. It's such a crazy experience. You're really only under for about 40 minutes, but it can feel like five hours or five minutes. It's bizarre. Um, but the first time my intention was kind of about religion actually and God. And I, I came out of it with incredible revelations. The next few times he raised the dose each time because I was doing well with the dose. And that's when I really started to get into like my mental illness and my trauma. And I thought that ketamine would take away my trauma. I thought I would come out of it being like that is in my past, I don't care about it, it doesn't affect me anymore, but it doesn't take it away. You learn how to make more space for your trauma and you learn how to be bigger than your trauma. You learn that your trauma is not a scarlet letter that people see when you walk around. You learn that it is part of your past and it is part of who you are, but it's not your identity. It doesn't deem what you will become And I found this extremely deep love for myself. Um, Not just the kind of love where it's like, oh, like, I love how I look, I am funny. This, like, deep, universal love where it's like, I would never want to bring any harm to myself. I would never want to kill myself because I have this worth that spans, like, beyond my consciousness. Yeah. And that was really healing for me too, like I said, in terms of like self-harm and suicide. Ever since then, none of those things have ever crossed my mind. And I've been extra conscious about what I put into my body and how I treat myself and how I speak to myself. And I think it's so such a fascinating um, thread that is so similar between other people that have experienced ketamine or other psychedelics of this awareness of this connectedness of us all. And this, I remember several times you were like, I saw myself like I was a star and like, and then we've talked about like, we are made of stardust and we are connected. And it's just this deeper level of consciousness that you can't even articulate unless you've experienced it and the depth that you felt that. Yeah. It was accessing a different layer of consciousness. And I, and I understand if you listen to this, you can kind of think, okay, that sounds so new age, so kooky, like, you know, third eye. And I honestly would would feel that way a little bit too before I had gone through it. But I genuinely, what I experienced for me personally was 100% real. Um, I felt so connected to everything that lives and breathes. And when I look at nature now, I see it as a reflection of myself, with, which also really helps with self-love. And another thing I learned was that like, in all these times in my life where I felt so alone, so ostracized, I have always been with myself. I have always sat with myself when I have been depressed. I have always carried myself. Like, who has been there for me at all times, if not myself? And that was so profound and powerful for me as well. You know, that's what I take into into the present. Like, if the next time I do experience some kind of depression, reminding myself, I'm here for myself. I will sit with myself. I have always been here for myself. And the biggest thing I got out of it, which is the most cliche thing you could possibly think of, is it's going to be okay. (laughs) And when I was depressed, if someone had said that to me, I would want to punch them in the face because it's like, okay, thank you. Yeah, Yeah, I appreciate that. And also it's like I had never actually felt like it was going to be okay, like never. And so I I don't even know if I'd recommend ever saying that to somebody. But to understand that for yourself is so profound. 
because for me, and I think dad has even said, like, he'll catch me saying that a lot. Like, I, I have had a couple bad days here and there, not a depressive episode, but some bad days. And I'll tell myself, it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. The world, the universe, myself is so much bigger than this depressive moment. It's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, so it's so wild, all these things that I learned from And Kevin. we're not under, and you're not even, you're not under the delusion, I should say, that another depressive episode no. won't come. We don't know. I've heard you say that I've never felt this, like, just stable and even because it's usually your good was, like, manic. Yeah. And that's not actually good. No. That's what you thought was. So it's, you've said, I don't think I've ever had a stretch of just feeling this even. Yeah. And like you shared, you had a couple bad days where you did get a little, like, oh my God, it's happening again. The, f- the first day I had, I woke up and I felt kind of down. I freaked out because I was like, oh my gosh, this is the start of a depressive episode. I thought I was prepared, but maybe I'm not. I, and it was like right before my birthday too. And I was like, I can't. I want to turn 20 feeling good, you know, all this stuff. And I called dad freaking out. And then the next morning I woke up and I felt completely fine. And I was like, oh, that's what a bad day feels like. Yeah. And yeah. that's what dad and my therapist told me too. Like, yeah, people have bad days. Yeah. And so now since then, I've had a few bad days because apparently that's normal. <laughs> and, and every time I'm like, oh. Yes. Like, yeah. thank God for a bad day. Yeah. Because yeah. a bad day is just a bad day. You go to sleep and it, we're done. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think the other powerful thing that you've shared with me that your therapist has said is now we can actually get to work because you're willing yeah. to talk about things. So talk a little bit about that because I feel yeah. like, I even feel like before the ketamine, you weren't wanting to share and talk about things like you do now. Yeah. So somehow that got you to a space of being able yeah. To talk about the trauma and talk about things that have happened. Yeah. Before the ketamine, I was in therapy for about a year and a half. And it was good. But the only thing we really could talk about was what I was dealing with at that very moment. My depressive episode or my manic moments. We couldn't dig into any of the traumas in my past because it was too much. Because I'm like, I'm depressed right now. How am I supposed to like dig into that? Yeah. But after the ketamine, I came back to my therapist and I was like, I'm so excited. We can talk about all my trauma now because I, I don't feel like I have this extra weight on me of trauma from today. Yeah. And that's that was one of the most exciting things. And that's what we've been able to do. And I also don't leave the therapy sessions feeling so drained. Like the one time I remember a while ago, we did talk about something from the past that was very traumatic. I was so, I, I went back to my dorm and just laid in bed all day because I was like, that was the most draining thing I've ever mm-hmm. did, you know? Mm-hmm. But now I don't feel like that because I have such a different perspective on my trauma and I interact with it differently. I think the other thing we want to say too is people looking into ketamine that it's not like you do these six weeks and you're done and good. Yeah. Some people have to go, it varies for each person. Yeah. Some people are done and good after, I'm sorry, six treatments. After that, some people do have another depressive episode a month later and they go back for another yeah. treatment. It really varies for each person. Yeah. And is that hard for you to still live not knowing? Like I know you got a little anxious stress when you thought a depressive episode was coming. Is that still something that weighs on you? Of course it's something that's stressful to think about because it's like... I was really used to like never being able to enjoy my happiness because I was so worried that right around the corner was a depressive episode. But I've really been working in therapy to change that mindset because that's just not a way to live in general. For me, I know that there is a good chance that I'll have a depressive episode again one day, whether it's next month or three years from now, I don't know. But again, I know it's going to be okay. Yeah. Because either the tools I've gathered from my ketamine will get me through it 
or if I need to do another ketamine session, okay. Mm-hmm. There's no part of me that feels like that's a failure or that I, yeah, that I've failed. No. Good. Are you kidding me? Like, no. Good. So there's no part of me that really worries about that. Good. You know, I'm very proud of myself. That's another thing that I gained from it is just like the ability to like feel genuinely proud of myself for coming so far. Yeah. And I also want to say, because I think it's important, like people listening to this and being like, okay, well, that's great, but I, I literally can't afford to do that or that kind of scares me. I don't want to do that. That doesn't mean that you're hopeless. That doesn't mean that like if you can't do this, then you're going to be depressed forever and there's no hope for you. There's resources. There are things. You could, Even just simply listening to this and maybe getting, okay, maybe I just need to open up a little bit more. Maybe I yeah. need to find some people who I can really trust and talk to. I'm just proud of you for still being here because mm-hmm. I know how hard that is. And I think continuing to break the stigma and talk about it. I think yeah. that's why you've become passionate of like, no, I'm, I'm done being quiet or I'm telling you guys not to tell yeah. anybody and me not telling anybody because that's how the shame perpetuates in yeah. silence and how the illness perpetuates yeah. is putting more yeah. shame upon you. So I would say talking about it and that's why you're yeah. sharing today. Because if, you, if your friends aren't people that you can openly talk about this with or support you, that's not making you any better. Like, I remember when I was starting to do the ketamine, I told my friends at school, I was like, yeah, I'm actually doing ketamine because I'm just very open with them. And while I'm sure they had their own, like, internal thoughts about that, they're like, well, that's cool. Like, tell me about that. I just love them. But that makes all the difference. Like, having support in your life from you and dad and from my friends, really, I couldn't have done it alone, you know? Yeah. So don't set yourself up to be alone. And I think one of your other passions, too, now with this is kind of fighting, voicing against, like, the media representation yeah. of mental illness. Yeah, I'm writing a paper right now, an analysis of how the media represents people with bipolar disorder and finding all these academic, peer-reviewed articles about it. And there was one I did that was um, about Twitter. And they like pinged all the times that the word bipolar was used in tweets. And they figured out like when, like the time it was used and the context that it was used in. And it always really peaks around Kanye, which I don't really want to talk about him that much, but it peaks around him. And then it peaks around times when men are speaking about their girlfriends saying, oh, my girlfriend's crazy. She's bipolar. She never knows what she wants. You know, bipolar is often used as kind of a, a derogatory adjective. Like, yeah, yeah. Oh, she's bipolar. She's yeah. so crazy, you know? So those are the times that it spikes around celebrities who struggle with mental illness and around crazy girlfriends. And I think that's, you know, really interesting. And, and problematic. And very problematic. <laughs> and another thing is in any TV show besides a few Bipolar is always represented as someone that's incredibly violent. And also sometimes it's represented like schizophrenia, which Mm -hmm. is interesting. And there should be no stigma around schizophrenia either. But it's like bipolar schizophrenia and uh, borderline personality disorder are all kind of like lumped into this one glob of just Mm -hmm. like, oh, you're crazy and erratic and you have all these different personalities. And that's so harmful. Yeah. It's so harmful because they're not the same. And there's people you know that are dealing with these things that feel like they can't talk to you about it because you think they're insane. Right, right. And watching our language. Yeah. Not saying, oh, that's crazy. Or, oh my God, that's freaking bipolar. Like, the language you throw out, we need to be, not you, we as a society, be way more mindful of that and how harmful that is to people that battle mental illness. Yeah, and especially, it's easy, because for me, if I tell my friends I'm bipolar, okay, I'm their friend, I'm white, financially good. I'm a very privileged person. 
okay, but then if you go downtown and you see people experiencing homelessness, a lot of them are experiencing severe mental illnesses, I'm sure, bipolar is out there. You view them completely differently than you view me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also really important to understand. It's like we need to end the stigma across the board, Mm -hmm. not with white women, upper class, privileged people experiencing mental illness, with the people on the streets, with people with drug addiction. Mm-hmm. The stigma needs to end on all levels. And so that's why it's so important to educate yourself, just like any topic with race, you know, all that, to educate yourself so you can love better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the only way that kids are going to feel comfortable telling their parents, I'm self-harming. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, there's a mental health crisis in this country from 2020, from your age group, but then also when you look at the prisons, how we don't help and treat people or homelessness. We put band-aids or to think we're going to fix things, but no, there there are deep roots here that this country needs a whole overhaul in the mental health field. And it should not be privileged people like us that have access to ketamine or things that actually help. Yeah. Grace, we've covered a lot in this hour. Is there anything that we didn't talk about or hit on that you want to say of any final words or thoughts to people maybe that are finding themselves in a, in a really low this holiday season? I know people that struggle with mental illness really struggle through yeah. the holidays. I feel like we touched on everything I wanted to, but all I would say as a final word is just if you're listening to this and you're experiencing mental health, if you're really depressed, I can't offer you a solution. I can't tell you this is what you're going to do. You're going to be fine. But I just want to say I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of anybody who lives life with a mental illness because it's so hard. People who don't struggle with mental illness, they don't get how truly hard it is. And I'm so proud of you. And I see you. And yeah, I'm just proud. You know, I'm just proud. I'm proud of you, Grace. And I love you. And I'm just so, so grateful for you and uh, your willingness to share this and keep walking through this and, and helping others. So thank you. Thank you for having me. I love you.